0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and
0: there's Jerry. So it's Stuff You Should Know. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, I think we should go ahead and apologize to eight Stuff You Should Know fans. There were more than that. Who have already heard this? Yeah, we went to the uh, World Science Festival.
1: We were invited to the uh-huh. World Science Festival in New York City. And we want to give a little special shout-out to Ben and the Ace Hotel for putting us up while we were there.
0: Yeah, we did a live podcast, short form, mm-hmm. in uh, Washington Square Park on a Sunday afternoon. It was kind of a neat thing. So um, Yeah, hey to everybody who came out to see us. We appreciated the support. Yeah, actually, I thought I knew everyone by name. There were actual Stuff You Should Know fans. Yeah. i was going to apologize to them directly.
1: There were some people uh, who clearly were not familiar with us and were just mind blown. Yeah. Walking around, glazed look in their face. Uh They look kind of defeated. I was like, oh, you like Stuff
0: You Should Know now. Yeah, I had a couple of people come up and be like, oh, what do you guys do? This is neat. And I said, well, you just saw a short version of it, my friend. And they're like, yeah. If you want a lot more side stories and anecdotes, then... Tune into the long version. Yeah. We had twenty minutes. We had a twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah. Boy, we had to get down to business, didn't yeah. we? And we did too. Yeah.
1: It was not bad. We didn't talk about tire stores or anything like that. Nope. We just
0: talked about the wow signal. Yeah, this is um I think this is fascinating stuff because this is something that even the most hardened skeptic hasn't been able to fully debunk. Yeah, that's that's a good point. It's pretty neat that you know they're they're upset probably.
1: So uh, we should say, that we keep saying the wow signal and Chuck's talking about skeptics and everything. There is evidence of a potential transmission from an alien civilization mm-hmm. here on Earth. And it's yeah. been here on Earth, printed out, sitting in the Ohio State University archives since the 1970s.
0: Yeah, and potential is the key word there. I think that's where most he- he- skeptics' head will pop off. Right, but again, you got you to say potential.
1: You and I did. Yeah, uh, I don't want anybody's head to pop off. You no. know, um, the 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 thing is, like you said, Chuck, no skeptic has been able to say, uh, "Here's your explanation, dum dum." Yeah, and they've tried. There have been plenty of explanations, but every single one has been systematically addressed and reduced to rubble, basically. <laughs> Um, so, the, the whole thing finds its roots, um, like I said, back in the 70s, but actually goes further back than that. There's a, a lot of, um, there's been a lot of talk starting in the 20th century over aliens. Chatter. Are we the other, other, are we the only life out there? Mm-hmm. Um, are there other people on other planets? And if so, can we communicate with them? And astronomers started crunching the numbers and doing the math. And said, we basically have two things we can do here. Mm -hmm. We can try to go visit aliens and look for them in the flesh. Yeah, expensive. Expensive and potentially
0: impossible. Yeah, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack.
1: Yeah, but also it's the closest, um, the closest planet to us is like a a few hundred light years away, I believe. 400 plus, right? Which means that, um, It would take 400-something years traveling at the speed of light to reach that planet. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't go find them. Instead, we decided that we would try to listen out to see if anybody was releasing any transmissions out there and find traces of alien civilizations that way.
0: Yeah. And um, did we do a show on SETI?
1: No. No. I'm
0: sure we've talked about it before. All right. The search for extra... uh, Oh, yes. Did we?
1: We did... I don't remember what it came in. We definitely have talked about it before, now that you say that.
0: I think we t- one of our uh, uh, South by Southwest or Comic-Cons might have had something to do with SETI. Oh, that. yeah, the UFOs. Maybe so. So SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, it's not a single organization, although there is the SETI Institute now uh, since the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. But SETI is a bunch of different groups that um, are... Uh, they're not tinfoil hat wearing crackpots who are bound and determined to find if there's life out there, mm-hmm. but they're open minded folks that say if there is life out there, let's get ahead of the game here and listen out for them and see if they're trying to say something to us.
1: Right? They're, they're basically people who say the there's just too many stars out there that have planets and that have are potentially habitable to life. Yeah, to for us to just it just it boggles their mind to think that we are the only living beings. Sure, they're, and they're scientists, right? And to these scientists, the the much more logical conclusion is that we're one of many um, civilizations out there, and so they have dedicated their their astronomical talents to searching for that.
0: Yeah, and this all started happening in the early nineteen seventies in earnest. And uh, I think it actually
1: started in the sixties in earnest, but with with uh, the big ear, it was in the 70s, their SETI program.
0: That's right. 1973, the Ohio State University uh, Radio Observatory. I love that you laugh every time. (laughs) Um, They had something called the Big Ear or had something called the Big Ear. Yeah. They needed a golf course, though. Yes, they did. So they got rid of the Big Ear.
1: Even worse than that, um, the Big Ear Radio Telescope at Ohio State was demolished, not to build a golf course, but to expand an existing golf course. Uh, we need another nine holes. Right. <laughs> we need another clubhouse.
0: Well, I think the Big Ear had seen its best days by that point. So don't feel bad for the Big Ear.
1: I still feel bad for the Big Ear. All right. So
0: 1973, the Big Ear starts scanning, uh, listening for stuff out in outer space. Hence the name. Hence the name. And um, what would happen is, because it was 1973, uh, it would print stuff out on a dot matrix printer, mm-hmm. and a student would uh, student assistant would take that printout of of what it was listening to, and take it to another volunteer, mm-hmm. um, teachers, professors, and they would just basically look at all these numbers yeah, if you've ever page seen, by page by page.
1: If you've ever seen the wow signal, you it's just numbers. Ones, twos, maybe a three here or there. Yeah, it's
0: the level of background noise in space.
1: Exactly. So um, a one is a blip, a radio transmission that was one time the intensity of the normal background noise in space on a particular frequency, right? Yeah. A one is nothing. Like there's ones all over the place all the time. There's ones, twos, and threes. Yeah, very common. Common stuff. Yeah. Um. And so this, these, these poor astronomers who were donating their time to the Big Ear telescope were basically, they were the,
0: the, they were analyzing this stuff. Yeah. With their eyes. Yeah. There wasn't like a computer program they spit it into. No. They, they <laughs> looked at this computer printout sheet after sheet after sheet.
1: Right. So for a, they would look at a whole night's scan of deep space. Yeah from a radio telescope, again, with their eyes going over uh, sheets and sheets of computer paper, dot matrix printer paper. And um, that's what this guy named Jerry Amon, who is an astronomer at Ohio State, was doing um, on uh, August 18th, 1977. He was looking over some stuff from three days before.
0: Yeah, and so he's scanning all the stuff, and there's ones, twos, and threes, and he's you know he's watching uh love american style on tv and eating his tv dinner and he's bored he out of his love mind that show. <laughs> love american style mm-hmm. and he's bored out of his skull and then um well here's another important thing to point out uh, because it was also 1973 the 7 that oh, was the 77 at this point they yep. didn't have um double digit printouts no it just went 1 through 9 and I, then started with the letter a B, C, D as uh, 10, 11, 12, and And, so on. Right, exactly. So he's reading this stuff, and he sees 6EQUJ5, which means the transmission at its peak of U peaked at 30 times louder than anything they had ever seen before. Than the normal background noise. And he circled it and put WOW! exclamation point on the paper, and that's why it's the WOW signal.
1: Exactly. And this is a big deal. I mean, like, in this this whole huge ream of dot matrix paper filled with ones and twos and maybe a three here or there. There's a U standing in the middle of this string, this it started at six, which was high. Yeah. I mean, six alone would yeah. be like, whoa, this is kind of significant. This thing went up to U. And uh, like you said, he circled it and wrote wow next to it and it became the wow signal. And um, almost immediately... They started investigating this thing. Sure. And there are a lot of details to the wow signal that are make it even more impressive than just the fact that it peaked at you. Yeah. started at six and ended at five and peaked at you. There's a lot of different aspects to the wow signal that make people say, what in the name of God is this? Yes. And we will start getting those details right after this break. You, you, you know so Chuck. Yes. Uh we were talking about how the WOW signal looks on dot matrix paper as six EQUJ five. And that means that at its peak, it goes from six times the normal background noise all the way up to thirty times. And then back down to five times the normal background noise.
0: Yeah, over uh, what we know, over 72 seconds.
1: Yes, which is very significant, it yeah. turns out. So um, the Big Ear telescope we should say a little bit more about. It was a Krauss telescope that was built in the 60s, and it didn't move. It um, eavesdropped on the electromagnetic radio spectrum mm-hmm. um, coming from outer space. Yeah. It, it eavesdropped on it, but it used the rotation of the Earth to move it.
0: Yeah, it didn't pan its little uh, big ear back and forth. It wasn't a show-off? No, it just stayed fixed. The rotation of the Earth very slowly would pick up uh, a new patch of Earth at the rate of the Earth spin. Right,
1: so um, the big ear... Is or the
0: sky at the rate of the Earth spin.
1: Right, and so it's just pointing out there in, in deep space, and as the Earth rotates, it would move the big ear's field of um, reception, I guess, Sure. across any given point in the sky mm-hmm. over a 72-second period. Yeah. And it just so happens that the 6EQUJ5 wow signal transmission mm-hmm. was 72 seconds, which suggests something very important here, Chuck. It suggests that the wow signal came from a fixed point in the sky. Right. That was staying in one place, and the big year... Just swept past it over the course of its normal 72 seconds.
0: Yeah. And uh I liken it to like if you're driving through the desert listening to your radio, uh your signal, the further you are from that radio transmitter mm-hmm. uh, or that radio station, is going to be pretty faint. And then as you get closer and have that direct signal, it's going to peak. And then as you drive further past it, it's going to get more faint again. Yeah. And that's what shape that this wow signal took. It took the shape of a pyramid if you graph it out.
1: And I believe that's the Doppler effect. Because I always hear the Doppler effect being explained by how an ambulance siren sounds far away and then gets louder as it gets closer and then it gets, you know, weaker the further away you get.
0: Yeah. Well, it also changes pitch, though. Isn't that the Doppler effect? I think so. It's not just loudness. It's like, <laughs> if you're in England. <laughs> Did you change pitch just then? Yeah, you didn't hear any difference? No. You didn't hear it go down? Uh, in volume. You didn't hear it go down in, in tone? No. Wow. Did you really? Are you tone deaf? I don't think so. <laughs>
1: it would explain a lot as far as karaoke goes.
0: <laughs> Did you, do you sing karaoke? Uh-huh. Did you recently? Yeah. What'd you sing. sing? Um, I got some songs here or there. You can't tell us one of them? Is that too revealing?
1: No. Let me think of one of my karaoke songs.
0: My big move is always under pressure. Oh, yeah. And someone's always like, oh, I'll do it with you. I'll do the Bowie part. I'm like, I do both parts.
1: I recently sang um, Eye of the Tiger. Oh, yeah. There you go. I have a big problem, though, with my karaoke stuff. A lot of the songs that I pick are just slightly out of the key that I can comfortably achieve. Well, if you're picking 80s rock, then yeah. But you would think I, the tiger, stuff. that the the guy's not singing that high pitch. Although I know he hits that high note, and I knew that. Yeah. But from the start, that guy starts out like a little higher than I can go. So it's just it's not necessarily a treat for everyone around me when I'm singing karaoke <laughs> because I accidentally, every once in a while, I'll have a night where like every song I pick is right in my wheelhouse. Yeah. And I'm nailing them. But for the most part, it's uh, yeah, I. I I warble a little bit, I guess.
0: I think the key to karaoke is to get your songs that you know you can do and kind of stick to those. Well, I'm I'm not like a pro. Well, of course not. You know? <laughs> uh, like I did a Foreigners Cold as Ice one time by accident because the song I wanted to do, I think under pressure someone had done. Uh-huh. And I was, they were calling me. I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll just do this. Yeah. And the karaoke guy in Philadelphia said, well, I hope you're, uh, hope you have a vice for your testicles. But he didn't say testicles.
1: Oh, he did And I went,
0: why? And then I remembered how high that song was. It is. It was a disaster. <laughs> the Eye of the Tiger is not that far off. Yeah. Um, and
1: it, I, I should give a plug here to um, Sig Gold's Request Room. Oh, yeah? If you're in uh, New York City, uh-huh. you should go to Sig Gold's Request Room. It's on- um, Is that one of those private karaoke 26. It's not private. It's just a piano karaoke bar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not, not private room. No. Okay. But it's a back room with like a, a heavy curtain. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense that it's private, but it's not private.
0: It's just, you just show up and. But hang it's out. live. It's a guy playing piano instead of a backing track? Yeah, it's
1: a guy named Joe McGinty. Nice. He's a very good, talented musician. Wow. He's, uh, he's actually a friend of Yumi's. Wow, I didn't and he have used to, to play that. for the Psychedelic First. Holy cow. And he now he's uh, one of the owners of Siggold's Request Room.
0: Man, that place is going to blow up now.
1: I hope so. It should. It's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. All right. Boy, that was a good segue, or uh, not segue, because that leads to nothing.
1: No, it leads to... Uh, how do we get on that Doppler effect?
0: Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's talk about SETI again. <laughs> okay. let's, let's bring this all back home. All right. SETI, uh, or the different SETIs around the world, decided at one point that, um, like you said, a good way to find uh, transmission might be to listen out for it. And if we're going to listen... Um, what would be the most likely um, radio station that they would transmit? On? Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, and of course, it's not a radio station. I say that as a joke, but
1: but that was the first. That was the first. Um, that wasn't the first thing they thought of. No, like, if if you say, okay, we can't go to distant planets to start searching for aliens. There's just it's just too far away. Mm-hmm. We would all die on the way there, right? Yeah. We're so not going to wait
0: for them to come down and play a moog at Devil's Tower. Exactly. Instead, we're going to look for traces of them.
1: Yeah, listen. How can we find... But that. Well, listening wasn't immediately the thing. They started thinking like in different ways oh, I gotcha. that you could find evidence of alien civilizations. Mm-hmm. And finally, what they settled on was... There, If you're an alien civilization, you are probably familiar with the electromagnetic spectrum. So let's start looking there. Yeah. And let's, they started looking at the electromagnetic spectrum to see maybe where you would find some sort of evidence of alien civilization. And they thought, how
0: about the radio band? Yeah, there were a couple of uh, physicists uh, from Cornell in the 60s, Philip Morrison and Giuseppe Picconi, who... uh Reckoned that you know they're going to find a common language. They're going to broadcast on what's like the most common language of the universe—hydrogen. Not uh, I quite was a language. Say,
1: español,
0: <laughs> hispaniola. Not quite. uh I'm sort of being fun here with like saying it's a radio station and it's mm-hmm. a line. But hydrogen is the most abundant common element in the universe, right? And there is a hydrogen line, a hydrogen frequency. Yeah. So they figured this m- may be a good place to start listening.
1: Yeah, and and um, hydrogen's protons flip; they change spin pretty pretty much all the time, right? Okay. And as they flip and change their spin, they emit a little bit, just a tiny teensy bit of electromagnetic radiation, mm-hmm. like a little glow. Right. And that the frequency of that uh, emission is at 1420 megahertz. Since hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe and hydrogen is flipping all the time, it's also emitting uh, this um, radiation all the time, which makes 1420 megahertz the most common frequency Mm -hmm. on the entire electromagnetic spectrum.
0: All hydrogen all the time.
1: And again, these SETI researchers. Philip Morris and Giuseppe Colony. Um And I know it's Philip Morris, and I was just making a joke. Sure. <laughs> uh, a tobacco joke. Yeah, they have their hands in everything. Um, since these guys said uh, they would probably transmit somewhere on the radio spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um and they would probably be familiar with radio spectrums and electromagnetism, they would also probably know, just like we just figured out, that the most common frequency in the entire universe, no matter where you are, is 1420 megahertz. So maybe this would be a really
0: good place to listen out for alien radio transmissions. That's right. And the WOW signal was broadcast at 1420.4556 megahertz, right in the middle of the hydrogen line
1: right on the most common frequency in the entire universe we found in 1977 a radio transmission that was 30 times stronger than the normal background noise on that frequency that's right and
0: that makes uh made scientists go holy cow or wow wow indeed that even made skeptics go "Ooh, but ooh. What's this all about? Exactly. <laughs> the shape of it, like we talked about, the pyramid shape, mm-hmm. um, is exactly what you would expect. So that made everyone sit up and go, all right, well, there's also that. And then the sharpness, I know, is the third big reason that it just doesn't fit in. Right. Or it does fit in as an alien transmission.
1: So there are tons of like um very powerful bursts here. There of radio transmissions, like quasars emit... Um, radio transmissions and, um, satellites. There's, well, there, there's a lot of natural ones, I mean. Oh, yeah. Sure. The natural ones though, are very messy. They get spread across the band, mm-hmm. the electromagnetic band. So, um, if you got like a burst from like a quasar or something like that, you, you, Found it through the big ear. Yeah. You're going to, it's going to turn up on say like channel 1420, 1430, 1440, for, It's going to spill over across the band. Yeah. They're very messy. One of the things that really makes the wow signal so significant is that it was um, tuned basically. Mm-hmm. It appears to have been tuned because it came through only on the 1420 frequency. That's right. It didn't spill over. And the big ear was listening to 50 channels. So imagine like your radio is tuned, or you have 50 radios tuned to 1,400, 1,410, 1,420, 1,430, and so on, right, up to 14, f- whatever that goes to, 50 <laughs> channels out. Uh-huh. Um, the wow signal only came through on the 1,420 frequency right then.
0: So you've got the sharpness. You've got the fact that it was right in the middle of the hydrogen line. You have that pyramid shape. Yep. And everyone is wondering what the heck is going on. And, uh... Right after this message, we will talk about a few reasons why it may not be an alien transmission.
1: All
0: right, so we've made a bit of a case that there's something hinky that happened on August eighteenth, 1977. Right? Yeah, I think so. Pretty strong case. Sure. <laughs> um Of course, when you make a case like this, it's a, like they say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm-hmm. Basically, what we've ended up with is this is some evidence. So you can't make like a full claim that, hey, this is definitely an alien trying to get in touch with us because all we have is that 72-second burst. We haven't been able to find it since then, uh, and we've looked. Or listened.
1: Right. And, and just attending in a, an unexplained radio signal doesn't, I mean, it just, it's not like the signal said, hey, we're broadcasting to you live from Kepler 43B. Right. We'll be seeing you guys in 2150 AD. Right. When we come down and take over your planet. It's going be a bad day for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, like you said, that it's not. In and of itself, a proven alien signal, but um, there are a lot of really unexplainable things that support the idea that that's potentially possible. There are a lot of people who have tried to put out explanations to the contrary, right? Mm -hmm. For one, they have gone back and listened to that same patch of sky over and over again, more than 100 times, and no one's ever picked up the wow signal again.
0: Yeah, and I have... uh sure it would be nice to go back to that same patch of sky and hear it again but if it takes a lot of energy to beam a signal like that from deep space it may have been a one-off yeah or um some people have theorized that maybe if you were an alien civilization it takes so much power to broadcast in every direction you might use more of a lighthouse sweeping method um and so it wouldn't be at that fixed point it you know it's just out there moving across the sky
1: right and um it just so happens that the Big Ear and this lighthouse radio beacon crossed one another. At just the right the time. Same, yeah, at, yeah. The, at just the right time. Um, yeah, that is a pretty good counter explanation or counter argument to that one. Sure. Another one was that it was um, it was some sort of transmission from Earth uh, projected and reflected off of like a space piece of space debris. There's a lot of junk out in space. Yeah. You've seen gravity. I've seen gravity. Yeah, There's a lot of space junk out there, and it can reflect radio signals, right? Mm-hmm. But there's some real problems with that explanation as well.
0: Yeah, because uh, I believe that from Earth, we ke- we don't transmit on the hydrogen line, correct? Right. It's protected. Like
1: You're not allowed to transmit on that because people are listening out for aliens on that line.
0: So no bounce back.
1: No. So... Even if you do have one jerk whose sole purpose in life is to mess with SETI scientists by beaming radio signals at 1,420 <laughs> megahertz um, so that they'll get beamed back into space, even if there was somebody transmitting and it, it supposedly bounced off of space junk, there's still problems with that explanation too. Chiefly, the space junk would have to be moving in the same direction, at the exact same rate yeah. as Earth, in order to give the illusion that it was coming from a fixed point in outer space. Yeah. Because remember, the uh, Earth would actually it would have to it would have to be even more mind bogglingly perfect than that. It would have to be moving at a rate that allowed the Earth to pass by it over the course of seventy two seconds. Right it couldn't just be moving at the same rate or else the big it ear would held never the signal, yeah. exactly so um apparently jerry amon was a skeptic of his own wow signal yeah and even he was like this no that the space debris thing it's just the probability of everything lining up like that sure. is just so um small that i i i hereby dismiss that <laughs> That's what he said.
0: He did. And uh, here's the thing. A few years later, I think in 1980, they actually developed the capability for this big year uh, and then other radio telescopes to move mm-hmm. on their own. Um, so, in other words, if it would have locked onto that signal, it could have locked on and then counteracted the rotation of the Earth and really listened to see how long that thing lasted.
1: Yeah, because we have no idea how long it lasted. We know it lasted at least 72 seconds, yeah. right? But no more than 24 hours because... It wasn't there the day before, and it wasn't there the day after when the big year went through and swept past the same the same patch of sky.
0: Right. Um, so so it was they, a few years they went too over late. the data, believe me. Yes, they did. Um, and like we said, they started listening for it specifically. Um, the very large array, uh, the VLA, in the mid 90s, and that is is that in New Mexico, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, New Mexico. Okay. Um, that has the power of 27. Separate radio antennas, um, 100 times more sensitive than the big ear. And they specifically, um, this guy named Robert Gray, an amateur astronomer, went looking for it, pointed it towards Sagittarius, which is sort of the rough direction that the uh, wow signal came from. Uh-huh. And again, he's like, I haven't heard anything since then.
1: No. Um, and, well, that, and that's another point that a lot of people say it was nothing, is that the that point out in deep space, out in the sky... There's nothing there. Right. There's no planet. There's no star. There's no nothing. So what, what is some seemingly artificial radio transmission being broadcast from when there's nothing but space out there? Pretty weird. It is very weird. But again, every uh, argument that's been made has been, uh, you can make a counter argument to an irrational, reasonable one. So when are we saying that there that this was an alien transmission? Not necessarily, but it is still potentially a reasonable explanation given the uh, the evidence that the wow signal presents.
0: Yeah, I think um, the way I like looking at it is what Jerry Amon said um, sometime in the 80s. He says, the best way I can think of it is that it was a tug on the cosmic fishing line. doesn't prove that you have a fish on the line, but it does suggest that if you keep your line in the water at that spot, you may get a fish. So I don't know necessarily about that spot, but it was it was something that we can't quite explain. Yeah. And, um, you know, keep the very large array going. Like, keep listening. Keep watching the skis. I mean, skies. <laughs> um, you got anything else?
1: Did we no. Miss, did we miss anything? Oh, man, we could go on about SETI and all that stuff for days. Maybe we will someday.
0: I think the official skeptics um, line is that, uh, what did they finally say? They, like it's a... The inter- Skeptics <laughs> Club? Yeah, the Skeptics Club. They said, uh, oh, an interstellar radio source of unknown origin is the official line. Mm. So a big, Of the Skeptics Club. Yeah, a big shrug of the shoulders, essentially. Gotcha. Yeah, so who knows?
1: 6EQUJ5. Pretty remarkable. I'll bet somebody has that tattooed on them somewhere.
0: I bet he spit, oh yeah, totally, like on the back of their neck. Um, I bet Jerry Amon spit his coffee all over the paper, too. You know, did a big (laughs) spit take.
1: Yeah. Uh, Classic Amon. Totally. He's like the Jerry Lewis (laughs) of astronomers. Yeah. Uh, If you want to know more about Jerry Lewis or the Wow Signal or anything like that, you can type some words like 6EQUJ5 in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, since I said search bar, it's time for Listener Mail.
0: Uh, I'm going to call this Purpose of Life. We got a lot of great responses from Does the Body Replace Itself when uh, you went into that really nice philosophical um, sidebar on, like, why are we here? Right. I thought it was interesting. Thanks. Um, Hey, guys. Just finished my four-month binge of all 700-plus episodes of Stuff You Should Know and wanted to write in about Does the Body Replace Itself. Uh, Towards the end... You discuss the purpose of life and why there can't be just a one or a few species uh, if the purpose of life is to cycle carbon, uh, etc. Speaking as a geologist, biologist, the Earth doesn't need life for anything. The planet would be just fine with no life and no carbon cycling. It would just look quite a bit different. Uh, talking about the purpose of life like this is an easy and common fallacy that implies some need that's being filled. Uh, life's purpose, if you want to call it that, is simply to replicate itself. That is, at some point, there was a molecule able to re- uh, replicate itself. As it did that, some copies were better at replicating than others, and so on and so on. Uh, over time, it became more effective to be encased in a membrane uh, than to use DNA. Uh, then to use DNA instead of RNA, and so on and so on. Everything alive today shares the history of ancestors that replicated and passed on their genes successfully. Life doesn't need to live or die or eat, or breathe, or swim, or fly, or photosynthesize, or procreate, or think, or love. But it does those things because they help it effectively copy and pass on the genes. Uh, This is the fundamental purpose of life, and though some may think it's cynical or heartless, I find it beautiful and truly awesome. And that is Danny in Seattle. Thanks a lot, Danny. Seattle, all the atheists and agnostics out there. Right. I just posted a thing. They have, like... uh, 7% 7% more agnostics and atheists than the rest of the country. Oh, really? And 7%? That's pretty significant. Yeah, and 20% less identifies Christian than the rest of the country. Huh. So, just a bunch of godless freaks. <laughs> well, thanks, Danny, for
1: tossing your opining in about the purpose of life or the purposelessness of life. Uh-huh. Uh, if you want to chime in on this whole thing, we can keep it going. You can tweet to us at SYSK podcast you can uh, join us on facebook.com slash stuff you should know you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com and as always join us at our home on the web stuffyoushouldknow.com
0: for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com